This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Tanse, hello, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm very excited to be speaking with Angela Sturrett today. She is a Vancouver-based, award-winning journalist, author, and artist from the Kixan Nation. Sturrett has worked as a journalist for close to 20 years and has been with the CBC since 2003. In 2021, Starrett won an Academy Award, the Canadian Screen Award for Best Reporter of the Year for her coverage of an Indigenous man and his then 12-year-old granddaughter who were racially profiled and arrested while trying to open her first bank account at the BMO. In 2020, she was nominated for Best Local Reporter by the Canadian Screen Awards for her reporting on Indigenous babies that were apprehended by the Ministry of Children and Family Development. She is also a motivational speaker and she works with Indigenous youth and she's always challenging and breaking the stereotypes that exist within Indigenous identity here in Canada and throughout Turtle Island. I know I left this conversation really feeling inspired and also um motivated to think of things in different perspectives that I myself have never even like questioned within my own thought process. And so I hope you enjoy today's episode. Without further ado, Angela Starrett. I have Angela here with me today. Angela, if you don't mind just introducing yourself, uh, where you come from, however you want to introduce yourself. Hi, hi for being here. Yeah. Um, yeah, for having me. Thank you. Um, we use the word amya in our language for thank you, but it actually means from my heart. And so amya, um, thank you for, for having me and for holding up so many incredible Indigenous women. My name is Angela Starrett. I'm a journalist. I'm from the Gixan Nation, and I'm registered with the Gitnamax Band, but my great-grandmother's roots actually spool from Kisbeok's territory. But because of the Indian Act and of us getting our status taken away for various reasons, um, when we went back to get our status, we, um, my dad had to get it through uh, Gitnamax. So I'm registered through Gitnamax, but I'm, I belong to the Gitan Nation. And I live in on Coast Salish territories in Vancouver on Skolholmish territory. Sweet, yeah, I'm also on Coast Salish territory. How long have you been in Vancouver for? I moved here um, actually when I was 11. So I was born and oh, raised wow. in Campbell River with my with my mom and my dad lived there too, but they broke up when I was two years old. And so I moved to Vancouver with him when I was 11. So I've been here on and off since I was 11, but I've lived all over Canada, all over the US at some points in my life too. Mm. Um, but I actually just moved back to to this territory in 2016, 2016. Before that, I was in Winnipeg. Before that, I was in Toronto. And before that, I was in Yellowknife in Dene territory. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And so out of all the places you have been and all the uh, nations you have experienced, what would you say is like your favorite one? Do you feel called to Vancouver for a reason? Or is it strictly just because of your work? Yeah, I mean, that's a, such a great question. I, I write in my book about how, you know, I think so many of us just have really struggled with a sense of belonging for so many reasons. Um, and that's the colonial project. Rip us away from everything that we belong to, our families, our communities, our territories, our loved ones. And so I never grew up on my territory. But whenever I go back there and, and we're driving in and we see Stikiad in our mountain and the sun sets on it and it's bright red and the Skeena River, it's just like I'm home, you know, and with the fire weeds mm. and with the land. And um, I guess I'm here because this is where I feel like I belong. You know, even when I go home, I don't feel like I belong. You know, it's always like, well, you never grew up on the res. Like, who the hell are you? You know, you're city yeah. girl and all of that stuff. And this is my community. So I think like I always try to get like in my journalism, I get people to steer away from saying the indigenous community because we're indigenous communities. Right. And when I situate myself here, I belong to like an East Vancouver, you know, indigenous community. And what I love about the neighborhood that I still live in and that I grew up in is that there's a bunch of 
um, native housing buildings, right? And so like two doors down, I remember my cousin used to live there. There's like a big totem pole in front and it's just, there's like indigenous youth everywhere, right? And I grew up yeah. in so many different indigenous youth movements. And so, um, and that means being connected to, you know, Cree people, to Squamish people, for Musqueam people. But this is really where I feel like I really belong and I'm really wrapped around in this community. So, so yeah. And, and of course, like the mountains and the oceans, but I hate saying that. Yeah. It's such a hipster thing to say, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but there is so much beauty in Vancouver. I've also like, I didn't grow up on my res either. I grew up in a pretty predominantly white community. Mm. And when I go to Toronto now, and when I go to other places, it is like Vancouver, you have the mountains, you have the ocean, you have a piece that you can connect to whenever you want to, even though you still have the city life. And I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure I know the building you're talking about with the totem pole <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure my cousin lived in that exact <laughs> building too. <laughs> so small world, small yeah, world. Yeah, everyone's got a cousin there. <laughs> I think <laughs> I still do. <laughs> right, me too. Um, I know you have been a journalist. You've been in the scene for about 20 years now. Am, is that correct? Would you say like 20 years? Yeah, I feel like it's been 20 years for like 10 years that I've been saying that because... <laughs> I feel like after that, it's like, okay, she's not experienced. She's just old, <laughs> which is both true. But yeah, I'm doing this for a while. Yeah. Well, my next question was going to be like, has journalism, like, was that something you found later in your life? Or is that something you kind of were brought up with, like growing up uh, a way of writing and speaking? When did that come into play in your life? Yeah, that's like such a good question because... I feel like it's always been like my little anchor, you know, and I've always like, it's like when you're growing up and you know, you have your culture. Right. But at one point you're like, I don't care about this. This is stupid. Like I don't need to be part of this. I, you know, you want to be a rebellious teenager, young person or whatever, but then you have to, like, you always go back to it because it's in your heart, right. It's your people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I was really little, like in place preschool, I remember my mom and my stepdad said the the preschool teacher would be like, shh, come in and check it out. She's at it again. And I don't remember this, but apparently I'd be holding like a big book and I'd have all the kids around me. And I didn't even know how to read. I'd just be like telling them stories. And um, I grew up on the street. Like I was on the street when I was like 14 and had a very rocky road in like group homes and foster homes and on the street and hotels and all of that stuff. And I would write poetry and that was, and, and do artwork. And that was sort of my way of like healing and also like processing everything. Mm -hmm. And within that, um, one of the group home dads who I'm still in touch with, um, I don't know if I want to get into the story. It's a super trigger warning story, but I was, I was, like at the worst, you know, when you just don't really want to live anymore. And um, I was like in the bathroom and he was knocking on the door and I was like, go away. Like all the swear words, like fuck off, go away. And he was like, and I left it this note and he was like, I'm reading the note. And he was trying to coax me out. And I was like, um, you know, just swearing at him and I'm doing this, whatever. And he was like, you're, you're a really beautiful writer. And I was like, like it totally threw me out of everything that I was in, which was, I don't matter. Like no one loves me. I don't give a fuck. And, um, they totally threw me off. And I said, what? And he's like, your writing is beautiful. Like you're an incredible writer. You're very gifted. And I was like, hold on, wait a second. What? And we kept on talking and he said, I, um, I have a really good friend at co-op radio and she runs a poetry show. Mm. And it sounded like, one of those things like, oh, it's just to like get me to out of here or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I did, I did come out and he was like, you're an incredible writer. Like, let's talk about this. And like, I think like a couple days later, he took me down to the radio station and this was real. The woman was like this blonde lady, probably in her twenties and had a tie dye shirt on like hippie. Mm -hmm. And she ran this poetry show and she was like, yeah, like I'm looking for someone to take over. And I wasn't ready then, but it like opened the door. Right. It was like, I could be a writer. Or I could be, on the radio, like telling stories that matter to our people. And that was sort of like the, the beginning sort of for me. And, 
Um, and then like much later when I was like fully on the street and I was getting off trying to finish my grade 12 and I did this program for um, youth of color, mm. native youth. And then me and this other woman, um, Billy Pierre, started our own radio show all about native youth. And this is a long time ago. I'm not even going to tell you how long ago, but it was before people were doing podcasts or anything. And it was just fun. Like we interviewed like politicians and native youth and artists and rappers. And um, and they went on to do one of the first indigenous magazines ever mm. called Redwire. I see. And I wasn't part of that, but I kind of always kept in contact with them. And then, yeah, from there, it was just like, I loved it. Like I just took to it. Mm-hmm. And I think on the street, I was always panhandling. And so going up to someone, sticking a mic into their face and being like, <laughs> do you want to talk about this? It was like totally like natural. Right. And it didn't feel weird or, you know, so from there, it just kind of set me off on this journey where I am today. Mm. So like when you're younger, it was like a shift in your awareness and you never even knew what reality existed until that man or that person was like, you're a really good writer. And then it opened your vision up. And I could imagine as a writer how you pull from your experiences of being on the street and being homeless. Like I imagine now you're able to connect with like people of all ages and people of all backgrounds because you yourself have experienced different different things throughout your entire life. I'm curious to know as a writer, what is your experience, like your process before writing something? Do you have something where like you do, like, do you have protocols that you follow? What does your writing process look like behind the scenes? Yeah. So what's really interesting about that is that, so I'm a multi-platform reporter. So I do television, radio, and and web, but mostly radio. That's sort of like my always been my my main thing and my my love. Um, and I mean, for me, I've just really been focused on indigenous stories for pretty much my whole career. Like mm. I've always pushed that, right? And so I remember in 2003, I was with CBC and. They had, they had zero appetite for Indigenous stories. And I was in Prince George, which is like a largely um, indi- large Indigenous population there. And they were just kind of like, yeah, like not not really on our radar, you know, or like, oh, yeah, cute. Go, you can go do that interview. Um, and then I just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. And so I guess like my process has always been um, the person in my story, right? They come first. So I do a lot of like very, very traumatic stories. Mm. If it is, you know, I do a lot of stories about um, family members of missing and murdered indigenous women. I do a lot of stories about child welfare. Um, And I'm often trusted to do the stories with the people that are most affected. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of trauma. And so I know that. And so, I mean, first and foremost for me to protect the person is to do as much research about this. So they're not informing me. Right. Um, You know, so I don't, I don't ask them like, oh, how does racism work? Or how does the child welfare system work? Or how could this have happened? Why did these people do this to you? It's like, okay, I already know how systemic racism works and how the child welfare system works and all of that. Like, you just need to tell me what you need to tell me. And, and, and I prepare them. That's more important for me than preparing myself is like, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when this story comes out. And that is other media stations might like harass you. Right. Um, but also, you know, this interview may appear on TV. It may appear online. It may appear on social media. Um, are you okay with that? Cause that's gonna, that's a lot, you know, to go online. And then I'm just always, um, mindful of like advocating for young people, you know, like we did a story about Maxwell Johnson and his 12 year old granddaughter. And I really pushed on not using her name because I don't want people to be Googleable, Right. And I always make sure that they knew that, know that too. Like you're, you know, maybe you're, you're homeless right now. And, and you know, you, you want to like really speak out against this and yes, like I support you, you know, like I want to tell the story obviously, but, and people don't do this as, as, as journalists, because, you know, they want the juicy story often. They want the story. Yeah. And for me, I'm just like, how is this going to look for you in two years when you're filing applications to try to get a house or a job? Or are you, are you okay with this? 
And often they are, right? They're like, I got that covered. Don't worry about me. But that's um, a layer of ethics that I think is missing. And when we're talking about trauma-informed, I don't know if a lot of people know what that is. And for me, it's it's keeping them safe, right? And letting them know that they're in charge because we're an institution. I am an institution. I am media. I am an institution. That's what I represent. When I go into community and I'm like, I'm Indigenous, they're like, I don't care. You're media. Like yeah, you're true, true, true. a bad institution that has been so shady to Indigenous people. And so we need to do a better job in making sure that there's more of a balance in power mm-hmm. when we're interviewing people, when we're telling the stories, all of that. And that's new. That's very new to journalism. I, I didn't even know those options existed, to be honest. I never knew you could create like a safe container while being interviewed because often I am the one battling in my mind if I should be the person to voice this or if someone else should be because mm. of that exact reason. It's like, is this going to come back to bite me or hurt me? I don't know. And I don't feel safe here. So I'm glad that you're very like, you're, you're responsible for these people and for these stories. Yes. And that was going to be my next question is I know that like CBC and like networks um, at their core are like you said, they weren't covering indigenous stories before or voices. And so now that you've spent like 20 years of your career or your whole career within this system, is it changing or like, like, is it still moving very slow? Like, how does that look? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, I found a documentary that CBC did. I think it was 1968. And it was 100% like not even, no question. It was 100% a promotion of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Wow. A promotion. It was the most mortifying thing that I've ever seen in my life the priests were saying things like there is no parents worse than yours. And I forced my, I wasn't forcing myself to watch it, but I was like, this needs to be recorded in case it's gone because as an institution, we need to reckon with this. We need to sit with this. We need to sit with the embarrassment because we need to change and we need to know how indigenous people feel about us. And so Mm. it was, it was so freaking, I, a couple of times I like went to the bathroom and like, vomited I got chills like as you were saying that like my whole body just froze like to know that though that existed here at one point like that's that's frightening that's horrible and that is our legacy of media and so I don't think a lot of the reporters and producers and editors or leaders are thinking of how much harm we've done it's like we haven't just reported on it and re-traumatized we've done the trauma And a lot of that legacy is still there. Um, I've seen reporters, you know, still like thinking all Indigenous people are drunks and asking them that in their questions. Like I had one reporter ask an Indigenous woman who was in labor, like, have you, are you, do you drink beer? And she's like, I'm, I'm pregnant. Why would I be drinking? And she's like, it's okay. You can just tell me if you drink a beer. And she's like, I've been sober for seven years. Mm. And so there's just a lot of the remnants of like all the stereotypes that we are bad parents, we're drunks, we're uneducated, we're lazy, we're incompetent. It's all still so alive. And I think there's a lot that's changed <laughs> yeah, like, and it, yeah. to an extreme level. Like when um, the pandemic started and George Floyd was murdered, that led to a lot of conversations and a lot of the things that I'd be vocalizing like about, like we weren't even allowed to use the term survivor. And I think it was 2008, we had to say the term student. And that was just 2008. We weren't allowed to talk about racism. It's just like, uh, ra- and it even says that in some of our, um, our, our like journalistic standards and practices is like, be very careful about how you use racism. Like you're not mm. basically not supposed to talk about racism. Colonization, the 60s scoop, residential school, the foster care system, the millennial scoop, all of this stuff. Like I'd say two years ago, people were like, no one knows what that is. So either mm-hmm. don't talk about it or you have to like explain in like serious detail. But I would say within the last two years, like major kudos to all 
the black reporters and black people who were like, we need to talk about racism, institutional racism, police brutality, racial profiling, all of that and pushing, 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 because it really got us from here to over here. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when we started talking about the preliminary findings in Kamloops, like that, I'm, I'm, I'm really in this place of like, Hey, when I go out and I'm seeing, you know, the teddy bears and all these like symbolic things, is this, are people now viewing me like, Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Yeah. Or are they like, go, go, you know, are they in the ring with us or are Mm -hmm. they on the outside cheering or are they crying? You know? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm looking for right now. Like what, what is this doing to the public psyche? Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that it's pushing us, you know, the, the George Floyd and, and the, the, you know, Black Lives Matters, the, I don't want to say that movement because that's been around forever. Yeah, totally. But the, that movement that was invigorated during that time got us over here. And now this conversation I'm hoping is getting us here, but you never know, right? Like things can always go backwards, but that's kind of what I'm watching right now. But media has changed tremendously. Mm. Yeah, that, I have two questions. I'll start with the first one. Is like, is there, you said that you kind of have rules you have to follow, but are there protocols within reporting that, like you said, it's kind of opened now more, but is there still like, are you being censored when you are reporting for CBC? Um, I wouldn't say censored, but I would say up until around like 2018, like people within the institution wouldn't necessarily take my journalism seriously because Mm. I was an indigenous woman reporting on indigenous stories. So people would always be like, are you like an advocate journalist, which is considered a diss or are you actually an advocate? You know, just like pretty benign stuff. Right. It wasn't just like, this is racist. This is wrong. Like, you know, what a decolonize, like nothing like that. It was, it was all very benign. Just like, I think I should be able to cover the story about a Hawaiian community that is, you know, 7,000 kilometers from my community that is in Gitsantara territory mm-hmm. that I have nothing to do with. So why would I have a conflict? Right. Right. And so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of getting in trouble for speaking mm. out about racism. And I'm talking like a complaint from the public or other reporters, sometimes once a week or more which is you can imagine, like when we talk about microaggressions, like just how defeating that is. And then like lateral violence too. So yeah. I was talking about, it's like walking up a mountain with a bag of potatoes and you're getting the gunshots in the front from all the racists and then the arrows in the back from all the people who also don't want you to succeed or speak out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think you bring up a really good um, point of lateral violence. I feel like I didn't really have a lot of lateral violence until I got older. And I think as Indigenous women, we are held on such big pedestals that sometimes it can feel like we have the weight of the world on our shoulders yeah. and we're like educating non-Indigenous people and then we're supporting our communities yeah. and we have to be accountable. And so it can feel like pretty overwhelming. And so I'm curious to know, like, do you have practices that connect you to your own power and into your own inner guidance system when you are facing like lateral violence or facing all these other things in the external world? Yeah. I mean, when I I had to take six months off of work because of the, the level of lateral violence I was facing. And so I actually was diagnosed with PTSD. And that taught me a lot about how to get better and how to care for yourself in the moment. Mm. Um, And that was amazing. You know, I did, um, I've always done like trauma-informed counseling. So I've always done like EMDR. I don't know if people are aware of that, but it's basically like um, somebody's like either tapping on your knees or they can be like holding up a a stick or something and you're looking. Um, But it's basically the, I think it's like the patterns or the eye movement. I don't know, it's called EMDR. And it, it moves trauma from your body fast, like three sessions. I mean, I was at the point where like my son would drop like a coin and it would be like an explosion went off in my brain. Like I was so triggered by everything. And so I did EMDR. I did, um, I did a thing and I still do it. It's called tapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really amazing. And I was really drawn to that because Indigenous people used to do that. And when you look at some Indigenous people, I guess, the tattoos show where the tat, where the 
where the points are. I'm not sure oh, if that's really? like indigenous people in Canada, yeah. but I think in different parts of the world, they've, they've found people who have all those points and that can get rid of a lot of trauma and then mindfulness and mm. then breathing. I mean, I, I'm very, um, my practice is so different now because I think one of the most important things for indigenous people is to have people in your support circle. So, I mean, mine is, is, is CBC, right. And to have people around me go like, this is also trauma informed. Um, so there's two things. And one is be able to say, yeah, like take a day, take two days, um, process, take care of yourself, like to have that. It's so important, but also a super important thing is to have, um, white people tackle racism for you right like why like we have so much we have to deal with in terms of trauma like intergenerational trauma and our own today trauma um and future trauma um but hopefully not future trauma but you know like to have white people just go i'm gonna take this massive brick of hell and i'm gonna demolish this for you that's huge mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For me, we need to be uplifted by our institutions to be able to call out racism and for them to call out racism with us, because that is a huge part of our stress, our trauma, our our weight that you're talking about, the weight of the world. And we need to be able to keep on pushing to have other people take that off, but also to give us the, the power and the agency to call that out if we want. You know, so I don't get in trouble anymore <laughs> because I kept on saying, for one, you know, I'm a light-skinned Indigenous woman. I have a lot of privilege and power, and I am going to keep speaking about racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia in our communities and, um, you know, so much racism, anti-Black racism. Um, and I'm not speaking for anybody, but I'm going to push that envelope because when it gets to my son, I don't want him to have to keep on. I don't want him to be a warrior. You know, I, I want him to be like just having a beautiful, loving life that he deserves. And so, yes, we can do EMDR and therapy and there's free counseling if your status in BC, which is incredible. Free counseling is amazing. And so we need to keep on pushing for that, more of that, more for Métis, more for non-status, more for Inuit, um, more for all of us. But we also need to remember that a huge, huge piece of the disintegration of our mental health or the, the barriers for mental wellness is racism, is colonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've touched on a lot of good points. Um, One being like, not only is this affect non-Indigenous people, but this affects our own communities, these conversations and colonization. And so even becoming aware of the biases and the stereotypes within our own psyche. And so I'm curious to know, do you have any advice for the younger generation that is Indigenous, that is wanting to work on themselves to have these conversations, but maybe is too scared or doesn't know where to begin or doesn't know where to start? What would your advice be to like the younger generation or I guess to your son like how do you have these conversations with your son yeah I mean for my son I've always just been like you know even when I was pregnant with him it was just like you know love will solve this (laughs) and it doesn't always (laughs) right but it was always just like if, if I can pour as all my love into him and just cherish him and love him then everything is going to be okay And it actually was true. (laughs) Um, But I always tell him, you know, like there's a couple of different tools that you can use to manifest anything that you want. And I think, you know, to my younger self, like if I look back, I'm just like, man, like there was so many times in my life when I just got stuck in patterns. And I remember I was in a Mohawk ceremony and the elder there just was like, you need to be careful, you know, when you're going towards these dark places you've been before, because you're creating these habits. You know, I always teach my son, this is what I tell the future generation is that you do what you love. You don't do what is going to make money. You don't do what you think other people are going to want. You don't do what's trendy. You do what you love, right? And sometimes it takes a bit when you're younger to explore that and find that out. But something that makes you feel 
good in your chest and good in your heart and good in your whole body, go with that, right? And and, and know that things are going to change all the time, but go with what you love. And, and also remember that that manifestation is so possible with like anything, like blue sky it. And that's what always I was taught. And it's not just like, be positive, be positive. Because when you've been through a lot of trauma, you actually have to, you have to retrain your brain to think a complete, you're rewiring your brain in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of times I hear, you know, Indigenous people, you know, the, a lot of the pan-Indian stuff we do, like yeah, smudge and everything, which is. is amazing. But, you know, when I was growing up as a teen, it was always like, smudge yourself or clean that, so let's clean that out of there. But we forget, like, when you take stuff out, you need to put stuff back in, mm, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's great to clean out the negative, but you need to fill that back up with, like, flowers and medicine and totally. love and kindness and hope and joy and fighting racism or whatever, yeah. right? Like, and to know that like you have the power right here and it's you. And I wish like when I was, I remember I just never thought like, this is so dumb, but I was like, yeah, I'm like smart and you know, I'm smart and I can write and stuff. But I always just kind of thought it was ugly. And I was like in my mid thirties and saw myself on TV and I was like, I'm actually not bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I was just like, why can't I, couldn't I have seen that? You know, I wish we could see ourselves when we're younger as beautiful beings. And I see so many young people now identifying in ways that I could have, I wish I could have identified and, you know, not just male and female and all these like colonial boxes. And my son is just like so incredible and, you know, I'm thinking about like indigenous cosmologies and our language and our culture and weaving and all of that stuff coming back to us now, which is kind of mm -hmm. like the essence of what we think of as indigenous futurisms, right? And just taking all of that stuff and bringing it to the forefront, right? And making it the future. Exactly. And that is, yeah. And that's, that's what I'm seeing around me and going, yes, like let's, and loving, loving our sisters and brothers and two spirits loving our people <laughs> totally um, and and knowing that when we hold them up you know you can be like jealous of them or whatever when you see something you're jealous of to know that's actually something you want mm -hmm. and to shift it and go oh here's the five things i love about this person tell them and bring that within your psyche you know there's start embodying that yeah and lift them up go you're awesome you're freaking amazing and that's shifted my when i'm talking about rewiring that's shifted my whole world is anytime i'm jealous i go that's what i want so let's like love that right and let's uplift that more and that's hard i think Do you ever wonder what goes on behind the scenes of your favorite homegrown films and TV shows? Well, it's time to pop some popcorn, go behind the camera, and meet the people who are making it happen. I'm Mariska Fernandez, host of the Maple Popcorn Podcast. In this new series, you will discover exclusive interviews with Canadian icons and hear them talk about Canadian flicks and even break the fifth wall to share set anecdotes. This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female and powered by Telefilm Canada. Subscribe now on the podcast app of your choice and don't miss an episode. Stay in the know by visiting telefilm.ca slash see it all. I think colonization has let us believe that there's only so much that can go around. Like there's only these opportunities yeah, and yeah. there's only these doors and I have to get through this one when it's actually like, no, there's enough for everyone. So even like decolonizing your own perception of like what success yes. looks like. I, a lot of the work you're talking about, I did like, um, well, I've been doing, but I really got into it in yoga teacher training was like rewiring mm. your brainwave state, going yeah. into the deeper layers of your mind. There's this thing I want to be, I want to go to, it's called neural feedback therapy because trauma like starts ingrading these certain pathways within yes. your brain yeah and then neural feedback therapy starts to like root 
rewire those pathways so that you're not constantly running on like habitual loops yeah my healer was telling me about she's like you need to go to neural feedback therapy and you need to make like all your friends do it too like this will help you out so much and so knowing that we have that power to do that now is kind of like indigenous futurism like we are the future we have the tool (laughs) belt that that all of the world needs right now and so when we think of this word like indigenous futurism if you could visualize like what does indigenous futurism mean to you and do you think it's tangible yeah i when i think of that word i honestly when i close my eyes and think about it i think about like i'm just gonna say exactly what i think about i think about like space so i'm thinking of like purple and greens and blacks and stars and then i'm going out from that and i'm thinking about our languages and our elders and our water and our fish and our cockles and our clams and our forests. And I've been thinking about that for the last couple of days. And then um, I did an interview today with Sinopola Weiss, who you should totally interview. She is young. Um, I don't know exactly how old she is, but I actually met her when she was um, like five. Uh-huh. And I think she's, probably getting close to 30 now. And I remember I went over to her mom's house and I was completely, completely lost and bawling my eyes out. She came up to me as a little five-year-old and she had, um, she's like, I've got some purple hair dye. Do you want to dye your hair? And she had this purple hair dye and I was like, yes. And she was like so nice and kind and generous. And I met her today and she showed up to her traditional territory Kemkemalai, which is a name for the maple groves in a piece of Vancouver that they used to um, tie up their canoes to, but also clam and and um, harvest fish. And she came with purple hair <laughs> and it just brought all of those worlds back to me. I was like, mm. oh my God. And I loved how she spoke about this is our land And this is what it still is. You know, it used to be a forest of maple trees. There's two now. And we're sitting here looking at a a container port. Um, But she goes, this is still our land, you know, and the land is in the cement here as well. And Mm. she talks a lot about these um, Kosalish dogs that they used to love and they used to use for their weaving. And I was just like, you are the future, right? And just meeting her at mm. five and her gentle little loving spirit who was just just wanting to like love, right? And and that's what I see that when I think of the cosmologies and I think of the elders, I think of the young people and that love because we hear like, or we all of us, I think indigenous people, like we often struggle to learn our language and Mm-hmm. It was like the fear of the judgment and the shame that I think some elders learned in residential school. And I'm mm-hmm. hearing people like her go like, you know, it's okay if you don't get it right the first time. You know, it's okay if you don't say it right in your, in the guttural way that we should. Like, it's okay. And I think for me, Indigenous futurisms is creating that space for that celestial um, way that we can be a part of the universe in the loving way where we can embrace who we are as urban indigenous Mm -hmm. people, for example, but also learning how to weave and thinking about, Mm. you know, she's teaching her language to her children in this very loving, non-judgmental, beautiful way. And to me, that's, that's indigenous futurisms, right? Taking everything and combining those worlds in the universe, right? And it's Mm -hmm. all that stuff that you were talking about too, like rewiring your brain and sounds a little bit hippie, new agey, but (laughs) it's also indigenous futurisms, right? It's like we are envisioning a new way of being amazing and being, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to always say like being how we used to be, whatever, because like nothing's perfect, you know, even in in the past. But we are making an incredible path forward. Yeah. And I just want to say like new age stuff is like appropriated from indigenous, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> indigenous cultures and yes. tribes and nations. Yes, it's going to put exactly. it up there. So <laughs> um, Period. yeah, literally, well, me and you both kind of work within like colonial systems. And so I'm curious to know, like, do you think indigenous
indigenous futurism exists within a colonial system? Or do you think there's a way of indigenizing or decolonizing? Or when you look at these colonial systems, like it is a lot of work to do. So what do you think needs to happen within them? Or do you think that we just need to like dismantle and get rid of it and like build our own? I always talk about when we're talking about decolonization, for me, decolonial is us speaking our languages, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's not like you're colonized if you're not also, right? Like, yeah. I remember growing up in the Native youth movement, it's like, you're so colonized for like anything, for like driving a car or like having food in my fridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember someone was like, you're such a sellout. So I don't <laughs> want to put it like that. But in terms of like institutions, right? So me, I'm in broadcast journalism. You know, I would like to sign off saying CBC News, Angeles Derrick, Skolholmish Territory or Musqueam Territory and and getting the permission to be able to say that in the language. And I'd like all of us to be doing that. Right. But within that, you can't just like I'm just not going to go off and start doing that. Like I'm going to consult with people from Musqueam and people from Skolholmish Territory and people from Tsleil-Waututh. Like it's 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 a lot um, it's about reciprocity. Right. And I think for my institution, like it's completely the opposite. Like we believe in, I mean, I don't believe in this, but my colleagues believe in a, uh, an extraction model, right? Like Mm. parachute in, you get your clips, you parachute out and you probably don't even say, you know, email them to say thank you after you get your story and your clips and it's got your name on it and it's yours. And so for me, it's, there's a lot to it. We're, we're addressing racism. That's amazing. That's like a huge step. We're able to talk about the things, mm-hmm. but I think like we need to kind of change the way that we think, like we need to think about reciprocity mm-hmm. and healing. So trauma informed. So I think like, I think we're at a, at a place where like, I don't feel so dismal. Like it's like, okay, there's possibilities rippling up and that feels so good. Um, but I'm just like, hey, we need to now talk about this. But I think I think it can happen. But I do think we need to we need to keep on pushing. And there's going to be a lot more. But I but I think that if you have any semblance of privilege and power to use your voice, like you do, I've seen like so many of your amazing like whether it's on TikTok or Instagram, like just you know. And people are I find people are at this very 101 stage. I mean, I saw one. I think you did it. It was about like. Yes, we pay taxes. <laughs> yes, yeah, we oh, pay yeah. for gas. Like, I think it's we're at a one-on-one place, and I think that's okay. Yeah, you know, at least we we have that space to do that now. Well, that's one of the questions I often get asked because um, there is a lot of non-indigenous people asking, you know, how can I support indigenous communities? Like, what can I do with my privilege and my power? And I get a lot of these messages through social media and I'm only one person and I'm like I don't even know what you do so I can't really help you but if you were to Mm. offer a piece of advice for like any non-indigenous listeners that are tuning in like what is needed at the network level to start to shift um and decolonize or in indigenize these systems do we need more indigenous people in leadership positions within these systems do we need more uh trauma-informed internal training within these systems like what are tangible steps for people with power and privilege to actually start implementing in their workforce yeah. I mean, I think the the way that my path kind of went to the point where I even just had trust for white people is one of the producers who's now one of the like bigger execs in the my workplace. Um, and she came up to me and she just said, I'm really sorry. Like we, we've really done a horrible job at covering missing and murdered indigenous women. Mm. And she kind of went on and on and on. And, but I was just like, whoa, like that, that's awesome. You know, like I've never, no one has ever told me that mm-hmm. no one has ever been like, we really screwed up and I'm personally sorry. Mm. Um, but it wasn't just that. Then she took it to the next step and she used her power and privilege to create more platforms and actually more positions. So she, one of the things that she did over the last three or four years is she now there's like, so there was at one point just one First Nations person. Now there's seven of us at CBC and BC, which is, doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot for me. I'm like, finally yeah. um, created more positions, more of a, a voice. Like if I spoke out and got in trouble, she'd be like, actually, this is okay. Mm. You know, normalizing constructive conversations about racism is really important. 
um, and being the one to like step out and, and be like, and putting yourself out there. And it also means like not speaking for Indigenous people, right? Mm. If you're a white person, no, mm-hmm. you don't know your my culture more than me. And that doesn't give you an in. You know, you can talk about racism and not be speaking for people, mm-hmm. right? It's hard. I think it it's, is, yeah. I think it's really hard and it's really uncomfortable, but I think making a commitment to, to making sure that there's more space and more voices listening. Mm. I find it here, you know, after we heard about the preliminary findings of, from the Kamloops Indian Residential School, I heard a lot of white people like being like, I'm so upset about this. And it is really upsetting, but just to think about what that means when you're taking up space for right. others, you know? And I mean, when um, George Floyd was was murdered, I was just like Googling the crap out of everything. Like, what is this and what is that? Mm. And what is this and what is that? And before I said anything, I was just like, inform yourself. Don't expect other people to inform you. Mm. There is Google, there is films, there is so much out there. And I learned so much. And and to know that we're all not one thing, right? Same as the Black community. Like, there's so many different perspectives politically and culturally. And for me, that that's huge. And then what can you do with your privilege and power to create space? So for my boss, it was she created seven positions. She gave me and another Indigenous woman our own columns mm. every week. So we get to have at least that space to... Um, amplify other voices mm-hmm. um, and and just normalizing conversations, yeah. right? Normalizing colonization, racism, um, and just sitting with that. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. It's but you have to just be uncomfortable for a minute or two or three and um, a- and listen. You know, what mm-hmm. am I doing wrong? What can I do better? And to not speak for people, I think is the most critical thing that I would say. Yeah, well, I think you touched on another good layer there of there's so many intersections within our own identity. And even us being like lighter passing natives, we do operate from a point of privilege to a certain degree. And so what do you think our communities communities need to do to address the like anti-blackness that exists within our communities? I think maybe it's a two-way street of we also have to listen to a certain extent and we also have to mm-hmm. know yeah. when to educate ourselves and when to take a step back. And I feel like, yes. yeah, this call out culture can be very like triggering, but it's also like mm-hmm. calling in. It's like being accountable to your community and coming from a place yes. of love, I guess, like what you touched on earlier. Um, so would your advice be the same thing for people within our own communities to address their own um, biases that they have towards others? Yeah. I mean, I remember I went to a reserve and we were all hanging out in this trailer type of thing, like off on the side of the res. And we were all like getting into the trailer. And I remember there was like five boys and they said, if we see any faggots around here, they're going to get shot. And I was just like, I better shut the fuck up and I better Mm. be quiet and I better just shut the fuck up. And I just felt terrified. And I've heard that type of language around black people and um, immigrants and people of color all the time. It's not like a new Mm -hmm. little thing. It's huge in our communities. It's huge. Um, I remember my dad, uh, I lived in East Van, so Mm -hmm. people would come over. I didn't have any white friends. I think I had two indigenous friends and everyone else was people of color and he was super racist and it was so embarrassing and shameful and it still is. And I think we need to sit with that. Like Mm -hmm. I am forcing myself to sit with this and go and, and to be like, Oh, I'm colorblind. No. Or Mm -hmm. like, I'm not this. No, we all have something, all of us, even internal racism about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to just listening, educating yourself constantly and just thinking about that. Right. So like doing the lineup for Indigenous Peoples Day, I'm like, we don't even have a black Indigenous person there. Like, can we we've got to do that. And and how and and also looking at the power and privilege, like, okay, we have like five like politicians there. Where's like the grassroots? Where's the where's the, you know, I want to have people from our community who aren't like 
cisgendered, you know, whatever. So, Mm -hmm. and then just making the space and also, I mean, I remember in that moment when it was like, faggots need to be shot. I was just like, there's nothing I can do right now, but just be quiet. But there's things you can do in your circles where you do have power, right? Like in my position at Mm. CBC, I'm not feeling, you know, um, isolated and, and in that space where I can constantly be like, what about this? And what about that? I think we need to just keep talking about it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I and I think getting called out is is fine. And it, it's really hard. You know, we we have experienced racism and um, violence and everything as well, but we also have a lot of problems in our communities that we need to address. You know, to eat online especially. Like, how am I making space for people? What am I doing to hold myself accountable and to hold my own community members accountable? Mm-hmm. And what am I doing if I go to a fire and I hear people like a fire, like a bomb fire, and people are, you know, being racist? What am I doing to to call that out? Yeah. Because sometimes that's yeah. all it takes. It's like actually that's not cool. Totally. Yeah. Just holding like you your know? own kin accountable, and I think that comes back to like yes. that community yes. aspect of. I'm not yes. doing this from a place of it. hate. I'm doing this because, like, I love you and I care about you, but we got to create, like, some safety here and some, like, hard boundaries, yes. too. I feel like sometimes that was what yes. I learned growing up was boundaries. I didn't even know it existed because, like, mm-hmm. when you're growing up from a state of survival, you're just you're, – you're an open book and you don't even know, like, what boundaries mean until probably – well, for me, later in life. And so, yeah, I think having these conversations is, like, the first step, even though how awkward or, like, dehumanizing it can feel. Like, that is mm-hmm. probably, in a way, like, decolonizing our own perception and within our own identities, ourselves as Indigenous people. Um when you go back into you know mainstream society what do you hope for for the next of 2021 and within your work at cbc and with within yourself and your own work yeah i've been thinking about that a lot um i have a book that is that's been published um it's called unbroken i hopefully the name doesn't change but um it's being published by graystone books which is an amazing vancouver-based publisher um and it's about missing and murdered indigenous women but it's also got a thread of my story of growing up experiencing Mm. violence on the streets and at home um and so i'm just kind of like i just need some time (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I kind of um yeah, I don't know, like a lot of a lot of the ways that I've been thinking over the last year, I guess, like with the pandemic is just how do I create more opportunities in my life for love? And I don't mean that in a relationship way, that's not in an interest of mine right now, but love with my my kin and my family and my my work even that's been really hard for me to build trust with white people (laughs) when it's like all white people and they're all like so different like how do you just be yourself right and create opportunities for love um but yeah most of my this the end of this year the book is going to be published in 2022 that's amazing congrats yeah (laughs) that's super exciting yeah it's exciting thank you and then the other thing I'm looking forward to is um, I am going to be a professor, like a um, faculty, but um, what's it called? Sessional for one semester at Western in London, Ontario. And I'm going to be teaching a course called Reciprocity, Healing and Decolonization. Oh, wow. And that so, sounds amazing. yeah, and I'm like that. That is like, I'm looking forward to that. It's in January, but to create a, to get my students with me to create a booklet or some kind of online manual for trauma-informed reporting Mm. that people can use when they're talking about Indigenous people. Because we've got stuff about war zones and sexual assaults and stuff like that, but we don't have anything about our people. We need that. Mm-hmm. That's totally. something I'm really looking forward to and just talking about what what is healing, right? And just, just like I'm loving like 
I'm loving that we we're talking about this right now. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm loving that we're talking about trauma and healing and love and creating more inclusivity in our communities mm-hmm. and being able to be ourselves in our communities. Yeah. And, you know, like that to me is just so comforting. And um, just meeting you today and Sanakula today earlier, I just have so much hope. Yeah, me too. Um, and yeah, so that's that's what I'm thinking about this this year. And I'm, I'm just really grateful to the younger generations and the space for us to heal and think about giving back mm-hmm. and to think about belonging and then also changing the entire scope of how we think. Yeah, you touched on a few points there. And so I'm curious, how would you define matriarchy in your own words? And are there current matriarchs that you are inspired by? Yeah, our Gitsan culture is matriarchal, meaning it goes, our our identity goes through the mother's line, which is quite a conflict in me because there are some like, super traditional people who will say you're not even Gitsan because it's my dad right and Mm, so in order to even mm -hmm. have a name or a crest I need or even a clan um, I need to be adopted by an auntie but for me I feel like I have to go home and not just for a visit for all of that but the matriarchs in our community are everything and I'm just kind of like thinking too, because I'm also like, um, just thinking about people that I just look up to so much. So I recently did an interview with Ian Robinson, who wrote Son mm. of a Trickster. Yeah, I know. I yeah. Know. <laughs> and um, yeah. I'm just like, I like, can you just teach me the way, <laughs> like, you know, I look up to her so much and we have a very similar culture. So we have, we get mm. in our culture too. And he's, he's kind of just like this, um, this little shit disturber who's constantly, oh yeah, you think this is this? Well, it's not. And I think a lot about we get when I'm thinking about how we normalize things and like, oh, this is how everything's going to be from now on. And you're just going to do this for your life. And I think about how we get like created, like, rivers and realities and just completely flips things on its head and I kind of think that's where we are in our society right now like okay white man like you thought everything was just for you and in this white supremacist world well it's not and you've got to flip Mm -hmm. everything around and I don't know what that's like to be a white man right now and I see a lot of like <laughs> fighting it, right? Like, I don't want to change. Yeah, I don't want to change. Is. But just going back to matriarchs, like just, yeah. When I interviewed Eden Robinson, I was like, you are exactly who I want to be. And just like so giving. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I think like, I think also to like when we're just thinking, and I guess I'm kind of pausing a lot and thinking a lot because I've really been thinking a lot about about gender, uh, like through a lot of education through my son and like um, just like, you know, I mean, when I was in the Native Youth Movement, it was like, you're a life giver, you're a life giver, <laughs> right? And yeah. I was just like, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. a life giver and I'm a matriarch and it was really empowering. And I, I do still feel that way, but I'm also just, I'm learning and kind of unpacking mm-hmm. and denormalizing a lot of that and so I'm kind of in a space where I'm like what is is matriarch still the same thing or is it different now or when we go to our communities is it different and then I also have that conflict in myself right where my mom is my mom she's passed away now but she was white and my dad is Gitsan and so what does that mean for me right and I think Mm. yeah and I think like like growing up as a queer person too, like I just never know if I really was felt, if I felt like I'm a matriarch, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I like asking people because each person has their own perception and I've kind of been dealing with the same thing as we learn more. It's like, okay, is matriarchy tied to this one lineage mm. or this one 
definition or can we expand matriarchy in a sense because I think we can all take aspects of like what being a matriarch looks like within our own selves depending on how we identify like we all have the ability to tap into like our sacred masculine and feminine and yeah so yeah I love that you bring up that you're questioning even your own perception of what a matriarch is and you've really come full circle at the beginning of the conversation when I asked you about like your work you say that you want to create a safe container and you can see that you are always creating a safe Mm. container even through your um, ties to your community and the people that you surround yourself with and I think that's beautiful because it keeps us really grounded and humble and accountable too Um, yeah yeah one one last question I know we could talk forever but I'm actually (laughs) this is one thing I'm curious about because we touched on it a little bit with Eden Robinson and she wrote Mm. this series of Trickster and my brother was the lead in Trickster and it got me yeah Joel Joel's my little brother (laughs) yeah we're we're uh yeah yeah so I I I didn't actually get to meet Eden but I've heard a lot of great things about Eden and I got to know obviously the story a bit and I just thought you know it's very eye-opening having that trickster story because when you have these stories you're not only just telling a story or a movie you're telling Mm -hmm. like uh, it's a spirit it's a it's an entity it's yeah. got, it has like power behind it and so when you are telling stories I don't really know what my question is but like <laughs> it, what is why is it so important to be telling these stories and should we be telling these stories in this way because we kind of saw what happened with trickster and I think there was a lot of learning mm. lessons to that because trickster is like mm. they trick people and there's a lot of manipulation and so should we be telling stories that are sacred to our tribes and our culture or yeah, what are was what's your take on that? Yeah. My thought is yeah. <laughs> Although I, I'm not I'm not, you know, like I'm not an elder and I'm not I'm I wasn't I didn't grow up, you know, fully immersed in my culture at all. Um but I remember I when I was in the Native Youth Movement or when I was hanging out with them and there was this woman, Natanis Dejerles at the time, and she was this Actually, that that's who I was thinking earlier. That's who my role model was, <laughs> Natanis. That's funny. So that's that's who, when I think about matriarchs, I think about her. She has 10 kids. They oh, wow. all live fully on the land, like fully on their traditional territory. They have to boat to a rock to get Wi-Fi. Oh, my god! Literally. Like, they're so amazing. And so when I grew up with her, she was a few years older than me. And she was a filmmaker. She was always like, she always had her video camera. And kind of I did, too. I always had my microphone or my video camera. I think people thought I was like a spy or something, but I was always like, I'm recording everything. But she was just so outspoken and like, was like such a good documentarian and a journalist and an artist as well. And yeah, and so I remember we were at the Friendship Center in East Vancouver and she had her camera out. She was filming everything and this like elder came up and was like, you can't record anything. And she was like, Like, she didn't say it to his face, but she was like, fuck that. And kept on recording. And I was like, that's really disrespectful. And then as I've gone on in my career, like, I I get that. And, like, totally that's, like, a a big no-no for me. Like, if someone's like, you can't film this or anything, I'm like. "Um, But I think that there's power in more people seeing our stories. And for us, like, when you go into a feast, you're all a witness, right? You're witnesses. And you're supposed to carry what you know to other people who couldn't be there. I went to Heltzik territory and I was given permission to film their whole washing ceremony. And I just, I sometimes I question like, what does sacred mean? Hmm. And why aren't we able to film it? And I would never ever question anybody if I'm, and I never ever do. If they're like, this is sacred, you can, I'm like, yeah. But when I was in that feast ceremony, it was just like, I like I fully understood what it was. And it was just like more people got to see that and just experience like how powerful the Celtic people and their ways of mm. tackling injustice are in a modern framework. And I just think our cultures are so transformative mm. and that's how we keep them alive, right? Is, is understanding the transformative nature of them like the trickster. And so... For me, 
I, and that's another way that I identified a lot with Eden is that she said, I'm not a very good storyteller, but I'm a really good writer. And she could take the stories that her family told and put them to writing. Mm. But I think like, it's not up to me because I don't carry those stories. I mean, I do, like I did carry the, that Heltzik story as a journalist. Um, but I think what Trickster teaches us is that rules are meant to be broken. That's the essence of Trickster. Rules are meant to be broken. That's his, mm. that's his bottom line. Mm. And I think some protocols mm -hmm. are meant to be broken because mm -hmm. they need. we need to think about mod modernity. Right. And a lot has changed. And I'm not talking about disrespecting. I think some things need to be kept the way that they are, but other things, yeah. And I, I just think like traditional stories can teach us so much. But I think the way that like I just think there's there's so many more options and when we keep it to like oh no that's sacred like what does that mean mm -hmm. when you say you can only be on your land and you can only learn your language on your land you can only learn the stories on your land and I think it's important to go back home but it just limits us so much mm -hmm. right yeah, yeah having the ability to yeah like keep those stories but adapt with like the world around you and also like my perception and definition of sacred is probably a lot different than maybe yours or someone else's and so like yeah even questioning yeah like what we attach to sacred and what we don't yeah yeah well sweet thank you so much i feel like this conversation we could just like keep going on and on there's so much good medicine <laughs> within this conversation yeah. but for people that want to support you and your work, where can they find you? Uh, social media, if there's any way that listeners can support you and everything that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to do TikTok. I tried to do a little bit more Instagram. But I think where I kind of live mostly is Twitter. Because that's where journalists do their best work, I mm -hmm. guess. So Twitter is just my name, Angela Starrett. At Angela Starrett. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Angela. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0h at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in.